This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. All right, hi, this is Jeff Meyerson. I'm with Software Engineering Radio. Uh, today I'm interviewing Lars Vogel. Lars is a consultant, and he does a lot of work with Android, so this is a show about Android. Um, so Lars, why don't you introduce yourself and I guess uh, talk a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me today. Um, yeah, like you said, my name is Lars Vogel. I'm a founder of a German-based company, and we do Android and Eclipse consultancy teaching trainings on the commercial side, and I also write a lot about Android. On my website, and currently we have approximately 1 million visitors per month, um, the majority actually looking at the Android descriptions we provide. So um, we hope helping the community with this, right, as a, as a kind of service. Right. Uh, yeah, I should say that uh, I've used some of your tutorials, and they have been definitely helpful and were free of charge. So that was appreciated. Great, great. Um, so I guess I'll start with a fairly open-ended question. Um, so what what is Android to you? What do you what do you think of Android? Yeah, I think if you look at the, like the official definition of Android, it's an operating system based on Linux, right? I always like to add that it comes with a Java programming interface, and while you have choices to do it without Java, the natural way of developing application is Java. So you, you get a full stack. It's not only an operating system uh, with a lot of choices, but you could really get a kernel, you get a lot of libraries, and you get a lot of system services. And on top of this, the Android open source project also contains several applications, which are also part, but by default, uh, um, of an Android device, right? Yes, definitely. Um, so, so I noticed you you didn't really uh, it it doesn't it almost doesn't sound like you think of it as uh, specifically like a, a mobile project. You just think of it as a, an operating system, and it it sound, almost sounds like it's coincidental that it that it's mobile. I think it started also as a mobile operating system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just I found it interesting that you didn't uh, it wasn't um, the first. Thing that you I think it's, it's about to leave its niche there, right? Um, I mean, if you develop Android application, you notice that the latest release of Android introduces multi-user support, at least on tablets. And um, some of them already implemented that you can um, run several applications at the same time. So I think my expectation for the next step of Android is actually go to the desktop, right? And um, um, I'm not sure that we'll be going to see in the next Google I.O. if there are any announcements in this, but I think that's now the logical step, right? We have it on running on smartphones. We're running it on tablets. We have actually running it on um, glasses, right, Google Glasses, very t tiny devices, but also on um, car devices and also on, on TV sets. So I think um, the expectation is that it soon goes to the desktop. I think it just makes sense from the involvement. 
and then it definitely will not be a smartphone or mobile device operating right. system anymore. Right. Yeah, and and there there is, of course, this is somewhat of a side topic, but the the you know the the Chrome OS, which also you know is Google based, and uh, you know there was talk of of the over of you know the Chrome and uh, and Android merging, but they're they're so different that. Uh, that I guess Google announced recently that they're they're not going to be merging and kind of uh begs the question as to how the how the two different operating systems are gonna um are going to be regarded by Google. But yeah, I guess Google is, is cruel in the sense that if something is not successfully just kill it. Um the likelihood that they kill Android is very low at the moment because it's the most successful operating system I think these days. I'm not so sure about um, Chrome OS, and, and um, you must have also noticed this big Chrome statue which Google recently um, added to the Android building. Um, so there are some rumors that something will happen. And there also Andy Rubens just left um, the Android team, who was long-time lead of the Android project. Um, he went over to different responsibilities. And the guy at Google who is responsible for Chrome OS is now also overseeing the Android development. So I expect some changes here. Not yeah. maybe not a merge, but then some coexistence or something like that. Right, definitely. Um, okay, so uh, I guess we'll talk a little more about some some Android specifics, uh, particularly about um, the development. Um, so why don't you talk about uh, sort of Android's um, relationship with the Java? Programming language and um, what Android does in terms of uh, extending the language to um, have a compatible relationship with the uh, the mobile operating system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first of all, I mean, if you 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 are an Android developer, right? You did create a yes. Yeah, I've I've developed kind of one one extensive project and then some smaller projects. All right. And so you basically know the language of choice um, by Google for developing our applications is Java, right? So you have the Java right. development kit or Android development tools helping you to create these applications in Java. There's also some support for C, C++ applications with a native development kit. But the official recommendation of Google is to use the Java programming languages. Um, and um, I guess the choice of Google was really triggered by the popularity of Java, right? When they decided on a programming language, um, the rumor says that Google wanted to attract a lot, lot of developers to their new operating system. And the easiest way of doing this is, of course, selecting a language which is relatively popular, which is Java or has been Java at this point in time, right? So what you do is, as a programmer, you select the Java language, you write your Java source code, and and this is then under the hood converted into something else, right? So the Java compiler takes your class files and converts it into um, Java files, converts them into the class files. And then the whole tool chain of Android takes this, and there's a DEX compiler creating the so-called DEX um, file and puts it through a whole tool chain of Android tools to create an APK file, right, and put it on the device. So as a developer, you can reuse your Java skills, but under the hood it converts it into something else, which is different bytecode than you could use on the Java virtual machine. Um, this helps us 
if you have our skills and the Java knowledge, is, is very nice. And it has led in the, in the past, obviously, to some tension between Oracle and Google, as you know, right? Um, there was this lawsuit of Google actually trying to get some money um, from Google. But this is all, all settled out, I think. Uh, I think the lawsuit has closed last year, and the, the judge discovered that only, um, I think, nine lines from Java has been copied, and there was no, no punishment of Google. So depending on which relationship you mean, on the programming side, on the technical side, on the lawsuit, we can go a little bit deeper, deeper but I try to answer it as broad as possible. Sure, yeah, I, I was just thinking more, because um, I think a, a lot of the audience of this show is, um, you know, a lot of enterprise Java developers, and so, you know, I was thinking, you know, of a, of a question that um, maybe if they were aspiring to, to enter the Android development, like sort of what they would need to know, what they would need to be comfortable with if they wanted to dive into Android. Yeah, it's not like um, Java Micro Edition, right? So it's not a limited set which is available on the Android, uh, Android virtual machine. It is, or Dartic virtual machine to be precise, it is really, you can use almost all classes from the standard Java library, except the classes which don't make sense, like Swing or AWT, and use your whole set of Java skills um, to program for Android. And then, of course, you have to consider the Android Specifica, which I guess we cover a little bit later, like what kind of classes, the life cycle of, of it, and, and certain ways of running in the background. But it's really relatively easy for, for Java developers to get started with Android. It's not like any other programming language like Objective-C, right? Um, we train a lot of existing Java developers to learn Android, and we can see that they feel relatively comfortable after um, a few hours of getting introduction into the programming model. They can just use whatever they have used um, for Android. Most libraries are also now available for Android, so if they have any specific um, HTTP client which we're using, or XML parser, these typically work just out of the box on Android. Yeah, I think in in personal experience, the 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 the, the only thing I had a little bit of trouble mastering was sort of just how to how to um, access resources. Um, you know, if if I wanted to uh, load an MP3 or um, work with an image or something, it's it's it felt a little bit different than doing it just with Java. Um, but I guess that's the nature of the beast. Um, yeah, that's true. I have, I have um, I, I, this goes a little bit also with the topic of device uh, fragmentation, right? They have um, a certain way of handling the resources if you want to. You can also um, handle it as you used to do in the Java. You can also look. Uh, have a file API where you just access it from the file level. But a lot of, a lot of things that you typically use um, have been simplified, right? And these are the specifics of, of Android, which I personally really like very much, right? So you typically need an image, right, in an application, and you can just access it via a certain syntax relatively easy if you place it in a certain folder. And um, that, yeah, makes things, I think, easier. And I actually a little bit surprised that you're saying that you have some kind of difficulties accessing them. But I think um, tool-wise, it's really well supported. And 
I think after like um, understanding the basic concepts, at least in my experience, it just makes sense to existing developers. What kind of problems did you experience in, in getting this concept? Um, it was after I had experienced with it a bit. It, it definitely felt very natural. It was um, it, it was just the sort of the the concept of um, I think it's when you compile it, the it makes that the resource the resources file, and it's just sort of like a um, this this static file that you access for. Um, I guess you could probably explain it better than I could, but uh, it it just creates a file. I think it's is it the called the resources. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, just for the sake of our audience, perhaps um, with the thing we're discussing is that there are certain folders in an Android project which are automatically managed by the Android build system, right? There's a folder called REST, standing for resources, and there's a certain semantic with what we, you can place there, right? There's a folder layout, there's a folder values, um, a folder drawables, and whenever you put a file here, the Android build system will analyze the content of these folders and generate um, um, a class for you, the static inner classes, so that you in your source code as well as in any um, other resources you can access these um, resources. So to give an example, you have a bitmap, let's say slash.png, and you place them in the folder rest drawables. Now, in your source code, you can just access it via this, this generated file, which is called r, r.drawables.splash screen. Right? And once this automatic management of resources has been understood, becomes really convenient, especially if you try to target multiple devices. Because um, you can just create several splash things in this example and put it in different folders under this resource folder, res, and use what we call resource qualifiers. Right? So the um, typical example here is you have different device um, sizes with different um, um, device independent pixels, right? The different density of pixels on the devices. So what you do to have an application look good on all devices, you create different um, graphics and put them in different folders following a certain 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 naming convention. And then Android will pick the right resources at runtime for the device it's currently on running automatically for you, right? So, so the programmer just um, still says, I want to access r.drawables splash screen. And then the device, the Android runtime will look, okay, what device I'm currently running on, what is the screen size, for example, or the pixel density, and then it will select the most fitting image which you have provided so that it doesn't get blurry or scaled. And I, I really like this because people talk about um, that it's really difficult for Android to develop because you have all these different device types. But we also have our lines of defense to make it relatively easy for us. We don't, at least at this level, we don't have to care about the device sizes. We just have to provide the right resources and the right density and resolution and put them in the correct folder, and then Android will pick these resources automatically for us, automatically, right? It's um, a very nice feature. Yes. Um, it used to be that the tooling was a little bit unstable, and I, a lot of developers had problems with the tooling, like the Android development tools, which is a set of plugins for Eclipse, 
and um, so there has been some issue, but the Google team is very actively in um, improving the tooling, and I haven't seen these issues in the last six months a lot in any project. So uh, you mentioned uh, the you know the ease with which um, the the resources allows you to uh, to to access these different sort of pixel densities to um, accommodate the the multiple devices that Android could run on. But is there is there anything um, that is that is still particularly difficult be, um, due to the you know sort of fragmentation across devices since especially since you know there's this there's kind of the issue of the um, you know, the, the lagging updates uh, across, you know, if, if you have a, a bunch of different people, they all have these different devices, and some of them are running ice cream sandwich, some of them are running jelly bean. Um, are there any uh, difficulties that you see on a regular basis with this? Yeah. Um, yeah before we talk about the difficulties, perhaps I would, would, like, to, would like to point out that I actually uh, love the fragmentation of, of Android, right? Um, if you look at the blogosphere or the, um, in the internet, a lot of people are very critical about this fragmentation. The way I see it is um, fragmentation is unavoidable, right? So um, if your device stays long enough in the world, people want to have an update, a new version, and the form factor just changes. Huh? We have seen this um, also with other devices, that at some point they just have to change. So, so I think a development model that just accepts that the device changes and is different and can be configured any way, it's the right way to go, right? Because if you do it, um, if you just consider it from the design of the application, from the beginning of the design of the application, then it becomes easier than just adding it on top of it. So I think um, it's a good decision which Android did in the past. The other thing is from a market perception, I think it's also great, and one of the reasons why Android is so successful is are these different form factors. Right? So if you always see these complaints, Android is difficult to develop. Um, yes, maybe it's um, a little bit more difficult to develop for Android than for a device which only has one form factor. But the consumer gets a lot of choices. And um, if I see around uh, the people which actually buy phones, um, with this given choice to them, um, makes them really interested in this platform. So every person can pick a, a specific phone, right? Um, someone wants to have a really big phone, he goes out and picks buys a really big phone. Someone would like to have a tiny little phone, um, he can do this. And, and of course, um, this helps also in, in market adaption for Android. On the technical side, of course, this creates certain issues. And I think the majority of the issues are related to access to hardware and also testing. Right, um, because um, let's say you're a typical average application developer, you may not be able to afford a lot of devices. Right, you may get, um, get um, may be able to acquire three or four different form factors, and that just limits your ability to test it on everything on every device. And I think the situation wasn't worse in the past but it has also improved on the tooling side. Um, first of all, um, there's a um, possibility to run Android applications in what we call an Android virtual device. And the stability and performance of these Android virtual devices just 
um, emulated devices on your computer have been largely improved in the last year. So it is actually currently possible to use these virtual devices to do some tests, which were more or less not possible, let's say, two years ago. Um, the other advantage is that you can, if you acquire a certain device, like a Nexus 7, um, with which has a relatively large screen and uh, um, high pixel density, you can actually instruct this device to be behave like a different, smaller device, right? You can tell it by a command line, all right, you now have a different resolution, 480 to uh, 320 and with a di different pixel density. And then you can only need one device um, for testing different device configurations, which is a pretty nice feature, I think. Um, of course, still the issue remains. You need to actually do this in, in the test cycles. Um, another nice change which the Android development team did um, was they have now um, in, the, in the tooling a preview for different device configurations. So if you design a layout, which means you um, create a certain arrangement of your widgets, of your buttons, and text views, so if you have this layout, you can actually say, OK, now I would like to see this layout in different device configurations, right? On a very small device, large device, on a tablet, and so on. And you get an immediate, immediate impression how it will look on these devices. And the fourth point is um, Google also um, improved with what we call theming. Um, it used to be a time where um, the device manufacturer was allowed to modify the default theme on the application. And for example, we had a customer project where we had this issue that we designed this application and made it look relatively nice. And then on an HTC device, it looked horrible because HTC changed the default device um, configuration. Um, this has also been changed. Um, as of Android 4.0, device manufacturer are not allowed to default, uh, change the default theme anymore by the specification of Android. So if you target a certain device, you can be sure that if you use a certain theme, that this will be unmodified on the device. Yeah. But then, to finish this up, of course, the issue still remains. You need to test on several and, and all relevant devices, which creates a little bit more load on the developer and on the test process. Right. Um. Okay, um, and so has the has the fact that sort of the Google has, seems to have defined the Nexus as sort of being the flagship. So, um, so I guess maybe when you're developing an application, do you is there anything that you like? Do you, do you specifically start out maybe targeting for the Nexus and then sort of alter your application from there, or is is that not really something that you focus on? Well, that's what we typically do. Um, it depends a little bit on the customer we're working for. Um, sometimes the customer has, has set it on a certain device. We do a lot of um, in-house Android applications also, right? So um, um, we see, by the way, we see a lot of movement from Windows Mobile to Android at the moment. I think Microsoft has deprecated Windows Mobile. So a lot of internal applications are now migrating to Android. And if we go to this customer and they have decided already on a certain device type which they're going to use for the internal application, then of course we only use this one for testing. But if we develop something for general publicity, 
then um, we use typically Nexus devices and have something else, right? Um, we have all the Nexus devices, um, and we use them typically for testing. Yeah. And then we try to find some exotic configurations that you also would like to target, and maybe run it in the emulator, or just look at the layout files, or just wait for user reports, which is also a valid approach, right? Um, right. Maybe not the best approach to get good ratings, but <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's really hard to test all exotic device configurations. The one thing which is currently, at this point in time, a must is if you want to be successful, you need to have at least um, a device configuration for smartphones as well as, as tablets, right? It really sucks if you have a um, smartphone application designed for a smartphone running on a on a seven inch or ten inch tablet. Um, this looks horrible, right? So this is a kind of must that you need to at least test your application on one smartphone and one uh, tablet device. I suppose it'll be kind of interesting if um, you know if Android moves to this to this desktop stuff, and then uh, you know it's you have these different issues where. Uh, you know, I th my understanding is that one of the primary things to keep in mind when you're developing for a mobile is you don't have access to an infinite power supply. So the 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 way that memory management works is a little bit different. So if you were developing for something that's that's a desktop oriented, you would have access to essentially infinite power. So it's just there's kind of a fundamental. It seems to be a fundamental difference there. That's that's true. I think um, the, the main difference, which I find kind of ironic, is that even though desktop machines or, or laptops have infinite power, usually have more memory, um, faster CPUs, um, the way the applications have been designed for these uh, machines are way slower than the Android application. Um, I'm not sure what the current specification says, but there used to be a time where the Android specification uh, defined it and it, the default main application on the Android device um, must start um, within 600 milliseconds. I think maybe this, the number has changed right in the recent uh, specification, but I think it used to be 600 milliseconds. If it has not been started, and if it was already running, um, an Android device uh, was required to show it again within four, 400 milliseconds. right? And if you compare it to any desktop machine which runs, for example, Outlook, Microsoft Outlook, that's a ridiculous timing, right? You have a small, relatively small device, 600 milliseconds. Um, I used to work with Outlook, um, and it took this specific Outlook installation with a huge um, email thing, uh, just took, I think, a minute to start, right? And I think that's also one of the reasons why we will very soon see Android on desktop or desktop-like or notebook-like machines, because um, the, the people, the general publicity, I think, is changing the mindset about speed. I think, not sure how long you are in the software industry, but I think we are used to like startup times between, uh, around a minute, right? So if we start our Eclipse, it's okay, but it takes 20 seconds. Outlook yeah. can take an hour, uh, a minute and so on. But I think younger generation is not used to this anymore. And I think this is, will be the primary factor why mobile device will actually jump to the desktop and uh, win the desktop for the general crowd because it's just much faster even though the available resources are uh, yeah, less on these machines. But of course, as an app developer, you have to consider this, right? Um, Android does a lot of work um, 
to ensure that everything starts up smooth and, and fast. Um, not sure if you have looked into the, the internals of Android, but what happens is that if an Android device starts with a certain process, um, I think it's called Sugata, um, is, is, is started and this process loads up the whole um, a whole virtual machine, a whole Dartic virtual machine. It preloads all the classes of, of um, Java which are required, and once a new application starts, the Android system forks off this process. Um, and this is really fast, right? It's just, it's just uh, the Linux fork command, and then the whole process will be forked. And Linux has this beautiful um, um, write on modify or modify on write um, um, principle. So you get basically the whole running um, virtual machine with all the cl um, loaded class files shared between the different applications. And only if one application modifies something, it gets its own access uh, memory um, access. Right. So this means that you can, even though all Android applications run in their own process, they share um, the class files, the standard class files. So the memory footprint is, is very low on our devices, but still everything is correct and really fast. No? Starting a new application just means fork off the existing process. You don't have to load anything, and you can just start running. One of the little tricks um, Android uses to make it really fast to start application. And then we as application developers need to consider also our limitation. Um, we need to ensure that we um, release bitmaps, which we have educated as typically um, a bitmap limit in every Android device. We need also to ensure that we do not go over the memory boundaries of the certain devices. Um, uh, this memory boundary is hard compiled into the device. It used to be 24 megabyte uh, per application. Um, has been increased in modern devices, but you still need to be a little bit careful with all your resources. And you also need to consider that the Android specific things that Android is allowed to kill your application at any point in time. Right? So you need to um, implement certain lifecycle hooks to store your data in case you get killed and so on. Right. Um, and so is it is it an accurate uh, assessment that so if, if you have, for example, um, several several applications running in, in Android and um, you know you, uh, you you switch from one application to another, the um, the operating system just it sort of freezes the the application that you were previously using uh, in RAM and just switches over to the other one and um, you you've, you in the previous application, certain things are specified that will continue to run and um, and get, I suppose, update or or notify you of certain things. Like if you still have Facebook running, and you know it'll still give you those minor notifications. But um, you know m most of the uh, most of the processes of that application are are going to uh, to um, not not be hogging your memory. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? Is that that sort of, seems sort of different than than a uh, a non-mobile operating system. 
I would say it depends a little bit which component of that what you're talking about. And um, also, you have to be actually actively doing this as a programmer. Um, so just, just on a um, very high level, the, the four different components in Android are activities, services, receivers, and, um, and something missing. Um, receivers, activities, services, and content provider. Right? So the four, four different components that you need, which you need to define and, and so on. Um, I think what you're talking about is a moment activities, which are visible components of certain applications, which the user interacts with, right? Um, so basically, I'll give you an example. You start an application, um, maybe in your, your Gmail application, and you say, I want to share something. When you select, I want to share this with Twitter, and you start a Twitter application. Within Twitter, you open something else, and so on, and so on, right? So you basically starting um, more and more visual components which are placed on top of each other. Whenever you as a user um, press the back button, the current running activity, which is the screen you're looking at, is removed, and you see what kind of activity was used to start this activity. Right? So you have like a little acti activity flow of your visual components. Yes. The Android system will not automatically freeze whatever activity was used to start something. So in my example, you'd say you have your Gmail application, and you start, you're saying, I would like to share a certain link, and you use Twitter for this. The Twitter application gets on top um, of the Gmail application. And within the Android terminology, this application changes its, its state. It's not running anymore. Um, it's um, also, it's not, also not active anymore. It's just, it's just hidden, invisible to the user. So now two things might happen. The Android system might decide that it kills this activity. Right? It may just say, okay, this activity is not longer visible to the user, so I can recycle it. Um, or the Android system may decide, um, I still have enough memory. So I leave this activity running because if the user presses the back button, um, this activity will be displayed again, and that's much faster if I have it still in memory. And we as programmers don't know what Android is going to do. Android, in most cases, tries to leave all activities running, but if it gets low on memory or needs some cleanup activity, it will kill the invisible activities in the certain priority set in which it will kill certain components. So um, what happens now is Android kills this activity, um, which is currently not visible. If you press the back button, Android knows that the Gmail application was visible at this point in time and restores this visible component of this activity. This also means that you as a programmer have to consider both situations, that you're killed and that you're not killed. So there are certain lifecycle hooks um, which you can program against where you can um, save your state of your application. And it's a little bit complex with the different lifecycle hooks, but the um, um, simple thing is on resume and um, on resume. There you basically visit a method which is called um, once your activity becomes visible again, right? And you can just restore any state um, which you want there. And the alternative side is on pause, which is 
called um, once the activity is not becomes uh, overshadowed by another activity. So in the simple example, the programmer can just save whatever store, whatever state in this activity is important. He uses on pause to save save this state. Maybe he also stops listener so that he doesn't con um, consume any en any energy anymore. And once he becomes visible again on resume, the method on resume is called, and then he can register again his listeners, for example, for location updates, and also restore its data if you want to. But that's something okay. you have to do as a programmer. You can very well program an application which is not visible, um, but still does a lot of com um, communication and gets a lot of update. And then you would be a bad citizen on Android because you consume a lot of energy. Uh, and users typically notice this, and then they will write back reviews or deinstall your application. <laughs> yeah, those uh, the, the activities with the um, those some some of those required methods, uh, the, the on resume and uh, on pause, on resume, on stop, uh, the, the, sort of the the ones that you are required to implement or override. Um, it makes it more intuitive for the developer to to interact with the with or interact and respond to the ways that the uh, operating system environment changes around your application. Yeah. And there's there's some weird decisions which makes it a little bit more difficult to understand this life cycle, right? Um, for example, you have this on stop and on destroy method, which are also life cycle methods. And um, if you look look at the Java, it's a little bit confusing. It basically says these methods may or may not be called. <laughs> so the idea of these methods is that you clean up certain resources or perhaps close certain um, handlers which you have, but you don't have guarantee that these methods are called because Android may also decide to just kill your process which is running. Um, and yeah, so in this case, if a process is killed, also all references will be cleaned up, so it basically doesn't matter, and I think that's why they have taking this decision to not call these methods in, in all cases. But it feels kind of weird, right? You have these lifecycle methods, and the Java doc says they may not be called. OK, so I guess uh, we can uh, sort of begin to close out the interview. Um, what, uh, so I guess what are the, uh, the directions that you see uh, Android going in the future. What would you What would you like to see? Um, sort of what's What is the future for Android? Um, what I would like to see is I think what how this interview started. I would like to see Android on a desktop, right, on on a notebook. I think um, for my personal use case, I would love to have something um, which runs on a normal machine and is really really fast um, as Android is. That would be my desire. I mean, for us developers, I think it will take some time until we can develop on Android or on an Android tablet or Android phone. So I guess we developers are stuck a little bit um, with laptops and, and PCs. But at least I think for the um, final consumer, um, it's, it's just a logical thing, right, that you have these um, um, combined tablets, um, which can be also docked in and have a keyboard. Um, a question from my side. And um, you're based in UK, right? What's that? Correct. You're based in UK. Is that correct? 
No, I'm I'm actually I'm uh, in the United States. I'm from Austin. All right. Um, sorry. Um, is it also that in your um, private circle, people actually starting to ditch their laptops uh, and just using phones and, and tablets? Uh, I I don't really see that. Um, I mean, I'm I'm in school at, at UT. It's a it's a pretty big CS school, and uh, people still carry around their laptops on a regular basis. I mean, we have access to to large computer labs, and and people still have their laptops. I mean, they just prefer to to use them. It seems like they there's still something of an attachment to your personal laptop. All right. At least here in my area, I see a lot of like casual users of computers that um, have exchanging their laptop against a smartphone or a tablet. Um, I find it an interesting, interesting movement, right? That certain people, which definitely not power users, but just people which rely on Facebook, Twitter, and email, um, starting to exchange um, their devices um, against just just a, just a phone becomes powerful enough. And, and that's, I think, we'll, what I um, also will see in the future. Uh, my other wish is. Um, that um, some of the features Samsung implements also getting back into the Android um, open source project, like the ability to run several applications at the same time. Um, I very much would like to have this feature also in Android. And yeah, I think that's it. These are my two wishes. Android should conquer the, the desktop and also allow multiple applications running. Okay. Well, great. I guess we'll uh, we'll close out the interview on that note. Uh, I want to thank you again for this opportunity. It was great to speak to you, and I definitely learned a lot. Thanks a lot for the invitation. It was fun talking to you. Great. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To support us, you can advertise SE Radio by clicking the Dig, Reddit, Delicious, or Slashdot buttons on the site, or by talking about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your own blog. If you have feedback specific to an episode, please use the commenting feature on the site so that other listeners can respond to your comments as well. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks again for your support.